Welcome back, everyone. I'm Justin Short, your host for today on the TLP podcast. Thanks for joining me. I'm glad you're here. Seriously, I'm really glad you're here. And I'm glad to be with you. So let's dive in. Next month, October 2nd, will be five years since I sold my practice. It's flown by. People often ask me if I miss it. And if I had to sum it up in one word, and I was being honest, the answer would be no. I don't miss it. And I don't mean that in a cavalier or ungrateful way. I'm extremely thankful I became a dentist, and I wouldn't trade a thing. And there are bits and pieces here and there that I miss from time to time, but I would not trade it for the life I have now. As I approach that five-year mark and look back on things I've learned in working with docs full-time since then and over a year before that point, I wanted to cover some universal truths, things that I think apply to all dentists and dental practice owners, facts that you can apply to your own practice in life. So that's what I wanted to share with you today. Hopefully it gives you value. If not, sorry, but doing my best here, folks. So let's run through these. There's going to be four of them. First one, your production will never outpace your diagnosis. You've heard me talk about diagnosis being what I feel is arguably the most important metric in your office. You can train, you can have the best location, the best looking office, best skills, best team. But if you can't look in the mouth and first see all the ways you can better this patient's health and life, and then communicate that to the patient with confidence, you will always struggle growing your practice. I'd rather get 10 to 50 new patients a month and have this skill down than 50 new patients and not. And I would say this is far and away the most common issue I see holding doctors back. And it's either they don't know what they're looking for, or they're afraid to tell the patients with sincerity and confidence what those patients could benefit from. I'll ask docs, why is profit down? Why is production so low? And I'll get the answer, every answer in the book, except diagnosis. We live and die by the general rule that your practice will produce, on average, 33% or one-third of what you diagnose. For lower-producing offices, that 33% will often be higher. And on high-producing offices, it's usually lower. Why is that? Why would someone getting higher-than-average case acceptance produce less? Great question. Because it's easy to get acceptance if you're only telling those people that are in pain or have broken teeth or come to you knowing they already want this or that. It's easy to convert on those patients. Yes, please give me a crown. Oh my gosh, I'm in pain. Please do root canal. Do whatever you have to do. This tooth has kept me up overnight. Anybody can convert on those. That's nothing special. If I only diagnose 50 to 100,000 a month, which I know for a fact, some of you listening do that, it's not hard to hit 50% case acceptance. My docs diagnosing four to 500,000 a month they're generally going to be in that 30 to 35% range. And I'd much rather have 33% of 500,000 than 50% of 100,000. So 
figure out your daily goal, multiply it times three, and learn to diagnose to get that per day. And then once you do, reevaluate and see where you're at. If you're doing that and still not hitting the goals that you have, that's when we start looking at other things holding us back and affecting acceptance. But save your breath and don't run up to your front desk and get on their case for not keeping your schedule filled when you're diagnosing one to one and a half times your daily goal every day. It's likely not going to happen. It's your fault, not theirs. Number two, universal truth that I have learned is that patients are patients are patients. What do I mean by that? Your patients are pretty much just like anyone else's for the most part. For the most part, your patients have the same amount of needs, same amount of perio, same amount of money they're willing to part with for dentistry, etc. The excuse of, I'd like to diagnose more, but all my patients have really good teeth. They all brush and floss twice a day, so we don't have any perio patients in our office. They don't like crowns. They don't like to get more than one tooth fixed at a time. BS to all of that. You can lie to yourself, but I'm telling you, it's not true. In every situation, every situation in which I've heard this excuse, there are offices in the same town doing the things that you say you can't, and they have the exact same patient base. The problem lies between your ears, not in your patient base. It's much easier to blame our struggles on our patients than to point the finger at ourselves and admit admit we need to level up. And we need to put in the hard work to improve. We need to quit basing our diagnosis on what kind of car that patient pulled up in, how long ago they had worked on, how long we've been in that practice, if they're in a good mood or a bad mood, what color their hair is, etc. All we're called to do is be honest and inform our patients of how we can improve their oral health and or self-confidence. Would this patient feel better about themselves sans snaggletooth? Probably, yeah. If we don't let them know what's possible, who's going to do it? Not their accountant, not the checkout person at the grocery store, not their coworkers. It's our duty to inform our patients of what's possible. You don't have to threaten them into submission. You just need to inform them of what you can do and then be honest. Number three. You get what you tolerate. This applies to all areas of our life. If you tolerate being unhealthy, you'll be unhealthy probably. If you tolerate making a lower income, you'll probably get a lower income. If you tolerate working until you're 70 years old, you probably will. If you tolerate drama in your office, you're going to get it. If you tolerate team members calling in sick or showing up late, it's going to happen. If you tolerate hygienists not co-diagnosing and offering fluoride, taking intraoral pictures, they probably won't do it. On and on the list could go. Think of every negative aspect in your office and positive. It works both ways. At the root, you have tolerated or not tolerated in some cases. And so it is. But Justin, you don't understand. No, I understand. I've been there. I've learned the hard way myself at times. And I'm speaking right now, and I coach, because I want you to learn from my mistakes. I want you to avoid them. 
I want all of you to reach the promised land faster and safer than I did. I take no solace in seeing dogs struggle in ways I know they don't need to. I hope every single one of my clients that want to get to hang up the handpiece and live on their own terms way before I got to. Nothing else makes me happier. Quit tolerating laziness, insubordination, drama, poor performance in your office. Because I promise you, if you allow it, you will get it. Everything you have in your life or lack in your life is a choice you've made to accept or not accept something else. And final one. This one's a little bit longer. It's kind of sobering. And that is no one is going to come and help you or do it for you. You may choose to get help, but no one is going to show up at your door on their own accord and say, let me help you get ahead. And no one is going to do the work for you. Your team member isn't going to just come to you and say, 99% of the time, they're not going to come to you and say, you know what? I've been thinking. It's probably not good for me to be showing up late like I do. So I think I'm going to start coming in when you want me to. Your hygienist isn't going to come to you and say, you know, it'd be great if I started taking pictures and telling people what I felt they needed before you even came into the room. Novel idea, right? Your front desk isn't going to come to you and say, I've been thinking. I'm going to put in the extra work to get our collections to 100%. Those things all fall on you like everything else in your office. If your practice in life isn't where you want it to be, you have got no one else to blame but yourself. You've got to figure it out. You've got to make the hard decisions and put in the overtime. Not because you want to, but because what you really want is worth it. Don't trade what you want right now today which can take the form of relaxation, TV, downtime, me time, to avoid any type of confrontation for what you want the most. The difference between two docs, where one doesn't tolerate the team showing up late or causing drama in the office, isn't that one of those two docs likes addressing those things? It's that they're willing to address it, even though they don't like it. That's the only thing that separates those two. I know I didn't like it. I didn't like doing most of the things I had to do to set my life up the way I have or run my practice the way I did. It didn't matter. The way I wanted my life was worth it. There was no other option. And when something is that important to you, where you have no other options, when you get to the point where you say enough is enough with this team member, I'm going to replace them, even though it sounds like a pain in the butt, but I have no other option. That's where things change for the better. You get one shot at life, no do-overs. And I promise you, whether you hear it or not, the clock is ticking. I saw this not too long ago, and it stuck with me because I felt like it really hit the nail on the head. The reason why I think people avoid making the decisions that make the biggest impact on their life. Because the truth is, to be the best and to reach your full potential, you have to be able to handle and go through the worst. 
And I know that's true. In my life, in the hardest times, have always led to the biggest upside. Hands down, unequivocally, I've seen it play out in real time, time and time and time and time again. Folks want the best, but they're not willing to go through what it takes to get the best for themselves. I think of Shawshank Redemption, great movie. Andy Dufresne crawling through the half mile of sewer pipe to reach freedom. Most people look at that metaphorical sewer pipe and be like, oh, hell no. I'm not going through there. I get it. It stinks. It's disgusting. It sucks. But look out there. Freedom lies on the other side. That idea alone instantly eliminates the majority of people. And I actually like it that way. And some of you like it that way. Because if it wasn't that way, it'd be much easier to be at the top. It'd be much more crowded. It would be one less thing to set us apart for those willing to do. When I need to draw some strength in my own life, I go back to three situations in my life that were the hardest, that have turned out to be the best, that I can say, I got through that so I can get through this. I'll go through them with you. First one And I get it, it's kind of vulnerable, and it may sound silly to a lot of you. So what? When I asked my future father-in-law if I could ask my future wife to marry me, he said no. That him and my future mother-in-law were pretty darn sure I wasn't the one for their daughter. In fact, he said that verbatim, which was that giveaway they felt like that. I know this will come as a huge shock to all you ladies out there, but I wasn't his first choice. They were very traditional, and I didn't really fit that mold. I still don't. So I talked to my now wife and was like, what do we do? We both want to get married, but she also wanted her father's blessing. So I had to go to work. I didn't put it on her. I didn't tell her her dad was nuts. I got to work. Her folks lived in Minnesota, so I called him up, and I was like, I know you just told me you didn't want me to marry your daughter, but can I come visit you? Coin was probably flipped by now. He now was probably the one thinking, this dude is nuts. But for some reason, he agreed. So I drove up there, and I stayed at their house for the weekend. My wife lived in St. Louis, where I lived. Basically, I found out they were most concerned that, like any parents, that it wouldn't last. That eventually I'd get tired of my wife and move on. And I couldn't argue. I'm kind of a, a rolling stone in some respects. But this was different, you know. So I asked them, what could I do to change their mind, knowing how important it was to my wife? So her f- folks thought about it after I left and finally called me up with what I'm sure they thought was the impossible challenge. And they said, if you and Becca, my now wife, cannot have communications of any type, Not on the phone, not texting, not seeing each other in person. If you can do that for six months, and if you still want to marry her at the end of that six months, and she still wants to marry you, they'd possibly reconsider. No guarantees, but they'd at least think about it. Now, keep in mind, we're in our mid-20s. We're in love. We're ready to get married. We live in a different state than her folks. They'd never know if we did it or didn't do it. We had the same group of friends, but as crazy as it sounded, I said, okay, 
I'd do it. If that's what it took to get her dad's blessing, which I know she wanted. Because I do think had I pushed, she would have agreed that it was crazy and said, hey, okay, fine, let's just get married. But what would that have said to her? That I want the easy path, not the path that you really want. I want the easy road, not the road that would better be better for yours and our relationship with your family long term. So friends thought I was nuts for sticking to what he asked, whatever. I knew what I wanted most. And that was more important than what I wanted right then, right now. If I had to crawl through that sewer to get to the other side, so be it. Six months passed, we did it. It was hard. But it built a lot of trust in our relationship. And my wife knew what I was willing to do for her, that I wouldn't take the easy way out. That time has now been, that time has now been a source of strength for us for the past 17 years. And we have a great relationship with her family. And her dad actually passed away unexpectedly at 54, the year after we got married. We didn't know that was going to happen. But had we gone against him and got married anyway, who knows how that would affect my wife long term. So, sorry, I was not trying to go all the notebook on you guys, but I wanted to illustrate the point. Next hardest thing was deciding to sell my first practice that was on fire and go work full time in my second practice that was drowning for my poor leadership and choices of associates. It was hard to leave the safety and security of my first practice. I was nervous. If I didn't jump in and turn the second practice around, it could have been and probably would have been financial suicide. But it did work out. And I grew that second practice almost twice as big as my first practice within three years. It took a hell of a amount of work. It took doing a lot of things I didn't really want to do, but I had no option. I knew what I wanted my life to look like. I had an end date in mind, and I was losing ground that I had to make up. And it worked out. But I had to crawl through that sewer. Final thing, probably the hardest year of my life, was starting TLP and getting it off the ground. It was very hard on my marriage, hard on friendships, hard on me. It was Groundhog Day for over a year. Go to work, after work, come home, be with my family until they went to bed, and then I got to work on TOP, writing and recording the academy, figuring out how to start a coaching business out of thin air. I was actually told by a former coach of mine, I won't say his name, that it probably wasn't a good idea. The market was saturated, I had a good thing going with my practice, but in true Justin fashion, I said, thanks for the advice, but I'm going to do it anyway. I knew what I wanted to do, and TLP has grown every, every year since. Most of our business is from referrals, and we usually run on a waiting list to get in with one-on-one -on -one coaching. I'm not trying to brag. I haven't always made the right decisions in my life. I've made more mistakes than most of you times 10, I'm sure. But my point is that you cannot sit back and wait for the life you really want to come to you, because it won't. And if you go through life, and running your practice, always avoiding the hard decisions, the hard conversations, the hard moves, whatever they may be, you're going to miss out on the best. And I don't want you to miss out on the best. If you see the life you really want on the other end of that sewer line, grab the snorkel and jump in. And being honest, a lot of times you can't even see it the other side. Or if you can, it's only in your mind.
with my second practice. I didn't know how it would turn out. I knew that I felt I was the safest bet. I knew to turn it around, but it was still a giant leap of faith. Same with TLP. I had a vision in my mind. There's no crystal ball that said, if you crawl through this sewer, it will work out and everything will be okay. I didn't know how long that sewer would be, but I knew to reach what I wanted the most, this was the only direction I knew to go. And I will say it took six months longer than I was hoping it would to get there, but it didn't matter. I would have kept crawling as long as it took. And when you have that mindset, you can't help but reach what you want the most. It's your turn to stop dicking around and decide what you want the most and unabashedly run to it, regardless of the sewer that lies between you and there. If you have questions about what we do or are interested in working together in some capacity, reach out to us at Derek, Steve, or Justin at thelifestylepractice.com. Appreciate you guys bearing with me today, listening sticking with it and just encourage you, man, just go for it. Now is the time. We're not getting younger until next time. Peace. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah.